So we continue our study of Mark chapter six. Uh, We're going to read the first 13 verses. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on a Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty, mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon are are not all his sisters here with us. And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He went in among about among the villages teaching And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two, gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil, many who were sick and healed them. This is the gospel of the Lord. So one time I was playing basketball and the other team got the ball first. They came down the court and they scored on my team. So we got the ball back and we started going towards their side of the court. And then all of a sudden, one of the guys on the other team said, I am so offended right now. Like that is really offensive that you would come to our side of the court with the ball. You you have your own side of the court. Why don't you go play over there? You're being too offensive. Now, obviously this is a made up story, but unfortunately it's what the Christian church does a lot of the time. Every commentator that I read on this text will notice that this text revolves around the phrase, and they took offense at him. People were offended by Jesus. Now, the problem when we hear the word offense is we think very often in terms of either insulting somebody or making someone feel uncomfortable. Uh, But the word there that is translated as offense is the Greek word scandalizomai, which we get our English word scandal from. It's less about making someone feel uncomfortable or getting under their skin and more about presenting evidence that requires a reaction. Maybe a better way to think about it is like playing offense in a sporting in a, in a sport. You're going to the other person's side, getting in their personal space and acting in such a way that requires a reaction from them. But as I was meditating on that this week, I wondered how often we have been exactly like that hypothetical basketball team. Like we tried to play offense, but then they said, you're being too offensive. You should go back to your side of the court. Society said to us, you can't talk like that. You can't bring up those things. You can't say that about those people. Why don't you keep your religion to yourself? Keep it in your private space, in your private life, but in polite company, don't talk about religion. And then we listened. 
whether we stopped talking about certain type parts of the Bible or whether we just kept quiet and we should have spoken or whether we sort of started playing a different game, like trying to be experts and not bringing people to repentance, but all sorts of other stuff as if to say, I know it's too offensive for me to come to your side of the court, but would you like to play checkers instead? We capitulated to people who told us to not be offensive. And if I may just share a personal opinion with you, I think this is maybe one of the biggest reasons why young men are not particularly enticed by Christianity in the West. Like you take a young man and you put him on a basketball court or a hockey rink and you tell him you're only allowed to play defense. That guy is going to quit the team because young men want to compete. They want to duke it out. They want to fight for something that actually matters to them. But in many ways, I think we've turned Christianity into defense even though our savior was offensive. We've told them, keep to yourself. Don't talk about your faith. Gather with the people who are like you. And when we get together, it's kind of all about hugs and being nice to people, but don't fight for anything. Don't push hard for something that matters. Don't try to change the world. It's no wonder, particularly young men don't like coming to church. Now, what you might expect me to say next is that we need to be more offensive. That we need to go out into the world and we need to change the world. That, that we need to call out the injustices that we see. We need to stand up for what the Bible says is right. And to some extent, I will say that today, although I'm gonna nuance it and I wanna start somewhere different. I wanna look at how Jesus offended people before we think about what it means to play offense in the world. And so we're going to break the text into two parts, just like Mark does. He first gives us this episode of Jesus being offensive to the people in his hometown, and then the calling of his disciples out into ministry. So we'll look at those two parts. And first we'll see how Jesus was offensive. The text tells us that Jesus was back home. Home for him was Nazareth, a small backwoods town in northern part of Israel. On this day, Jesus was going to the synagogue to teach Now, just to give you a framework for this, the synagogue was kind of how we think of Bible study today. So the worship life of the Old Testament church happened at the temple, and that was only going to happen on Sunday, or excuse me, on, uh, in that place. But if you didn't live close to there, you couldn't go there regularly. So you, you would create these synagogues. They were places where the community would gather and they would hear the word read to them. And then a rabbi, whether a local or a traveling rabbi, would sit down among the people and he would comment on the text of the Old Testament, sort of like a Bible study. So that's where Jesus was. And Jesus was the rabbi for the day. And even though Mark doesn't give us exactly what Jesus said or did in the synagogue, the gospel of Luke gives us insight into that. Um, Luke chapter four, he records for us that the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And on rolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus gets the scroll from Isaiah, reads from it, and essentially says, the Messiah that Isaiah was pointing to, I'm the guy. That's me. The whole Old Testament, it's all about me. 
And the people took offense at this. You heard what they said, right? Where does he get this power? Where does he get these words? The text tells us they ask, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? They took offense at him. Now, why did they take offense at him? Well, because he got in their personal space and said something that they just couldn't fathom. That that guy, he's the Messiah? It's interesting how they ask the questions, right? First, they ask, isn't this the carpenter? Like, essentially what they're saying is, he can't be a a rabbi or the Messiah. He's, well, he's a carpenter. (laughs) He works with wood, not words. And then they ask, isn't this Mary's son? Which was probably a reference to their understanding that Jesus did not come from a normal relationship. There were rumors scattered about him that he wasn't a legitimate child. He wasn't Joseph's son. So they referred to him as Mary's son. And then they say, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. Like we know his brothers. We played hockey with those guys growing up. Those guys are schmucks. There's no way he's anything. It took offense at him because they couldn't fathom the idea that this guy was actually going to be the Messiah. Maybe you've met people like that. You've met people who see Jesus as just one thing. He can't be the Messiah. He, He can't be the savior of the world. He's a religious guru at best, maybe a good teacher, maybe a political vigilante. Maybe you've met people who have said, isn't this Mary's son? They heard a rumor about Jesus once, They took an intro to religions class in university. And that's about as far as they got. And they're not really interested in looking at the evidence. They don't want to see what you have on the resurrection. They, They would just rather believe what they already believe. Or maybe you've met someone who asks about his brothers and sisters. They look at the church and they see hypocrisy, selfishness, closed mindedness. And they, they say, if those are his followers, if those are his brothers and sisters, what kind of God is he? I'm sure you've all met maybe one or multiple people who have that kind of attitude about Jesus. But I want us to slow down for a second because what Jesus says next next should hit us square, square between the eyes. He says, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. Who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to people who know him best the people who have known him their whole life, the people who have seen him multiple times, who have seen all sorts of things that he's done and said. And yet they're the people who reject him. In fact, Jesus says, particularly these people who know me, who are my relatives, who are in my own home or my own household, my own town, they are the people who will not honor me. Maybe you remember the fable from Aesop called the lion and the fox. There's a a lion that the fox sees as he's walking one day and he's immediately terrified of this huge animal. It looks dangerous, the teeth, the claws. And so he runs away scared. But then he comes back the next day and he sees the lion again. And this time he, he stays for a little while and watches as the lion goes about his business. And then the third day he comes back and comes right up to the lion and starts talking to him. And the point of Aesop's fable is that familiarity breeds contempt. 
The more often you see something, even if it's amazing and powerful, the less surprised you are by it, the less in awe of it you are. Maybe to say it differently, just like a traditional vaccine would give you a little bit of the disease so that your body would build up an immunity to it so that when the disease came against you, you could defend against it. Having just little bits of Jesus or seeing him regularly can quickly inoculate you against him and his power and his grace and his majesty. In fact, in some ways, people who know Jesus best are the least surprised by him. They're the least amazed by him because, well, he's always been around. Maybe you're like me and you grew up in the church, baptized as a baby, been in Christian education. And when you read things in the Bible about what Jesus did, you kind of just take them for granted. That's just Jesus. Maybe you're not somebody who has been a Christian your whole life, but you've lived in Canada your whole life with sort of the assumption of Christianity. For the most part, North America has existed with Christianity as sort of a background noise. Jesus has been around, churches have been on streets. People are talking about Christianity. It's just part of our culture in a way. And because of that, you've built up a little bit of immunity to him. See, there were two ways that the people reacted to Jesus. He was on earth. On the one hand, people wanted to crown him as king of the universe, Messiah, savior, Lord. And on the other hand, people wanted to kill him. I wonder if sometimes the problem is that we don't want to do either. When you meet the real Jesus, you want to crown him or kill him, but the the majority of North America really doesn't want to do either with Jesus. And maybe you're like that too. Maybe in a sense, you've been inoculated against Jesus. You're, you're not offended by him in a sense anymore. Maybe like those same people who said, isn't this the carpenter? You pigeonhole Jesus. You say, Jesus can have jurisdiction over these parts of my life, but not these parts of my life. I think about the people who text me and ask for me to pray for them. But I also know that they are living very contrary to what God has required of them. They want Jesus to be there when they need him, when they need him to be a stopgap or to save them from some trouble, but they don't actually want him to have any jurisdiction over their relationships or how they spend their time. I think of the people who, who call themselves Christians, but as far as generosity to the poor, uh, they would either say that's the government's job. I pay my taxes or they got themselves into that trouble. They should be able to get themselves out. I think about people who trust Jesus with their eternity, but they won't trust him with their money. It's easy for us to pigeonhole Jesus, to say, these areas, Jesus, you have access to in my life, but not these areas. Or maybe like those people who said, isn't this Mary's son? You've heard what you've heard about Jesus and that's enough for you. You got a pretty good knowledge. You grew up with Jesus. But the idea of digging in in a Bible study, the idea of of getting in a life group, the idea of watching YouTube videos to learn more, to get yourself a devotional plan or a book to read that could help you grow in the knowledge of your savior, that's too much. I know what I know about Jesus. I I don't need to grow in that. 
Let me just challenge you on that. I've been studying the Bible academically for about 18 years now. And still today, I have my Bible open for multiple hours of the day. I'm either writing about it, reading it, studying it, or praying about it. And still, every time I open the scriptures, I am surprised by something I find. And there are guys twice my age who have been doing this three times as long as I have, who feel the exact same way. Now, I'm not saying that to brag about myself. It's my job to know the scriptures. But my point is this. If you think you know enough, you're wrong. There's always more to learn. There's always deeper to go. There's always more applications to make. There are always ways to learn about who Jesus is and what he has done for you that you, can, you can't find unless you're willing to dig in. Or maybe you're like those who say, well, I know his brothers and sisters. Maybe some of you are, are watching online and you've never been to Cross of Life in person. Maybe it's because you're not really interested in being accountable to a, a body of believers. Maybe it's because you don't really like organized religion. Or maybe Cross of Life is your church home, but you've always got a problem with somebody in the church, a person, a family, pastor, a leader, the direction of the congregation. You're worried about the brothers and sisters rather than Jesus. It can be so easy to get bogged down with all the things of a human organization and lose sight of who Jesus is. I think in many ways, our culture, maybe even some of us in this church have been inoculated against Jesus. Jesus doesn't offend us anymore. We don't let him into our personal space. We're not willing to act according to what he says. But the fact of the matter is that's not okay. Christianity is God's almighty word the perfect communication of an absolutely holy God to imperfect people. And therefore it is going to necessarily get into our personal space and offend every single one of us. It'll offend us in different ways based on our background or our, um, our ethnicity or our, our socioeconomic status or education or, or our sex, whatever it is, it'll offend us. But, but if we're not willing to let it offend us, we'll never know the real Jesus. We'll be stuck in this place between killing him and crowning him. And so let me challenge you today. Are you willing to be offended by Jesus? Just to give you some examples of how you might be, I wrote down a list here of ways that Christianity will challenge different types of people. Uh, if you're an achiever, if you're someone who sees themselves as worthy because of their effort, Jesus is going to tell you that your works absolutely cannot contribute one bit to your salvation. If you're someone who chases comfort, he's going to tell you that being Christians means we are necessarily put out of our comfort zone. If you're a hard worker, he's going to tell you to find Sabbath rest. If you're a lazy person, he's going to call you a fool. If you're a liberal, he's going to show you he built the world to be in hierarchies and for people to have inequality of outcomes. If you're a conservative, He's going to show you that any wealth or prosperity that you think you built for yourself was not your doing, but his, and that he gave it to you so that you would give it to the poor. If you're someone who just wants everyone to get along, he will tell you that he came to divide families. If you're someone who's brash with their opinions, he's going to tell you that a gentle spirit is what he desires. If you're a feminist, you're going to have to reckon with the fact that you were saved by a man and that you have to listen to men going forward. If you're a misogynist, 
You're going to have to reckon with the fact that while men ran away from Jesus, the women stayed behind and that Christianity has historically always been a religion more highly populated by women than men. Look, here's the point. You got to know the real Jesus. It's so easy to go about your business and compartmentalize him or shape him into a savior that you want, but he will not be that way. Jesus tells us in another place in the Bible that on the last day, there will be those who call out to him, Lord, Lord, didn't we drive out demons and prophesy in your name? People will know who he was, have thought highly of him and even done things for him. And he will say to them, I never knew you. Maybe it's because they had fashioned a Jesus for them that was not the real Jesus. But here's the good news. Jesus still went to Nazareth. He knew. He knew that's how those people were going to react. He knew them his whole life as well. He knew the rumors that were being spread about his origin. He knew how his brothers and sisters behaved. And he still went back. He still went and preached to them, I am the Messiah. I came here to proclaim good news to the captives, to release those who are in bondage, to give sight to the blind, to heal people of all their diseases and all of their sins. And he still does that for you. Because Jesus has never been in the business of saving you because you're particularly well studied, you're particularly faithful, you're particularly good at repentance or being a Christian in general. He saves because he is gracious and he saves you because he's gracious. So when he preaches in your hometown, listen, be willing to let him into your personal space. And once you're finally offended by him, you'll be able to know how to offend others, which is what Jesus tells his disciples to do next. He sends them out. Now it's easy to read a text like this and to try to make really direct applications to say, okay, this is exactly how Jesus sent out his disciples. Therefore, this is exactly how we are going to do evangelism in our day. That's probably not correct. Partially because Jesus actually gives different commissions at different times in his ministry. And the last one that he gives is the one you probably know, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so this is before that, this is sort of like a a training session, if you will, for the big final call that Jesus is going to give before his ascension but there are still some principles that we can learn from this. And so as I was looking at this text, I realized that there are five principles that Jesus gives to his disciples about how to do evangelism, how to play offense with people. And they actually line up directly with our congregation's core values. Maybe you've seen this slide before. Occasionally we go back and we review our core values as a congregation. All five of them show up in this text. And so I want to walk you through them and see the principle and how we put it into action. So in verse seven, Jesus says, or tells the uh, 12 to go out two by two. And he gives them authority over impure spirits. In this, we see our core value of together. Jesus says it's important to do evangelism together. And there are four reasons for that. Uh, First of all, you want support. It's tough to do evangelism. It's tough to play offense. People are going to reject you and they're going to play defense. And so having other people with you to, to cry on their shoulder, to vent about how this is going, to, to think about better ways of approaching a situation, that, that support is necessary. There's also accountability. It's really easy to quit if you're doing something by yourself. But if you have someone else with you, you usually stick with it. Third, it gives confirmation. 
If you have one person saying a message, it's less believable than if you have two people saying a message. And finally, uh, you get accuracy. You know, think these disciples, they were walking with Jesus, hearing him teach, and now they're sent out to preach the exact same message. If one of them made a mistake, it was good to have another one there to say, well, actually, this is what it is. We need all those same things. As we think about what it means to play offense in this world, we have to do it together. That's why we have life groups to build up those relationships, to strengthen those bonds so that when you invite someone to hear about Jesus, when you're willing to share your faith, you have a group of people that you can fall back on. When you have to risk that relationship with a family member or a close friend, because you need to tell them about the gospel, you know that you have a group of friends who you can fall back on. It's not like you're going to be left alone. You have people who are going to sharpen you. They're going to challenge the way that, that you talk about Jesus. Make sure that you're accurate. Hold you accountable to doing it. All those things together. Then Jesus says, take nothing for the journey. In this, you see that we're supposed to be invested. Uh, an investment is taking your hands off a resource because you believe that in the future, you will get more of that resource. For example, my family just closed on a house. A bunch of money went into that for the down payment. I now do not have access to that money. But if the housing market continues to go up, I probably will get more back. Jesus' point here is by taking nothing, what you're saying is that your full investment, everything that you have is into this ministry. And you may not have access to the same types of things that people would normally have, but that's okay because you are hoping for something far better in the future as we think about our own ministries, how often are we concerned about making sure that we have the things that we need for this life rather than working to play offense in the world? Why do we worry about being financially stable before we give offerings? Why do we worry about being emotionally stable before we talk to somebody about Jesus? Why do we worry about making sure that we have a solid relationship before we share the gospel? Why do we worry about all these earthly things when Jesus says, you don't need anything? Then he says, whenever you enter a house, you stay there until you leave that town. In this, we see selfless. I imagine if the disciples went into a town and they started staying with somebody and then they found out that somebody else in the town either had a better place or maybe was a little bit more hospitable. They might want to, might, may have wanted to move on to another place, but, but Jesus says, no, stay there. Stay exactly where you are. Work with what I've given you even if it looks like the grass is greener somewhere else. We call this the doctrine of vocation. The idea is God put you in the place that he put you with the relationships that he gave you to do the work that he has assigned to you. And that may not be exactly exciting for you. It may not be what you want to do. It may not be easy, but you're called to do it. It may not be your preference, but it's God's preference. Then he says, if you find a place that will, that will not welcome you or listen to you, you should leave that place. In this, we see relentless. We see that when there is a, an idea or a way of speaking or a program that is no longer doing what we want it to do, we need to leave that and go somewhere else. If you're having a conversation with somebody about the scriptures and they are rejecting you, it's okay there are other people who need to hear the gospel. And then finally, 
He says they went out and preached that people should repent, which they probably said more than just repent. They probably talked about Jesus, who Jesus was, that the kingdom of God was breaking in, that the power of the Holy Spirit was flowing out through this man who was claiming to be God and doing miracles to back it up. And so we do the same thing. Playing offense in the world means calling the world to repent. But what I find more and more is that when people call the world to repent, they fall on one side or the other of the way Jesus wants us to call people to repentance. On the one hand, they will call the world to repent with a whole lot of law and truth. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to change your life. You're wrong. Jesus is right. Repent. Or on the opposite side, they call people to repentance with a little too much softness. They say, you know what? Jesus loves you just the way you are. Yeah, you got some, some messy things in your life, but it's okay. Neither of those is what God calls us to do. He calls us to be completely balanced with, with truth and love, law and gospel. What people need to hear about their sin, but also beautifully what they need to hear about their savior. And that's the simple message that we are called to play offense with. To go out and to speak to people about. It could be easy to think about all the other things that we might want to talk about when it comes to church. But Jesus says the simple message is to bring people to repentance. And so as we finish today and we think about what it means to play offense in the culture, I want to give you one thought and one story. The thought is that you can be a warrior. Not a warrior with swords or guns or weapons of any kind that you might find here, but with words. Especially for you young men, you can be warriors. Think about how many of you play video games with warriors in them. You play with reckless abandon. You don't really care if you're going to lose a life because you're going to respawn or regenerate or, or whatever it is. What if you played life like that? What if you had a cause, a goal, an idea that you were trying to bring into the world? You were trying to change the world and you could know that even if you were to die, you would continue to live. That's your faith which means you can be a warrior. You can play offense in the world. There may be some people who want to sit back and relax and enjoy Christianity until Jesus comes back. I'm not going to be one of those people. I don't think you want to be either. And then a story. Uh, Nicholas Bengu uh, was a man. He died in 1985. He was uh, from South Africa. Time Magazine did a article on him and they called him the Black Billy Graham. <laughs> uh, they claimed that Nicholas Bengu reached more Africans than anyone else. What's interesting is, is Bengu's uh, origin story. He grew up as part of a church, but he was never really engaged until two missionaries came to Africa and tried to start a mission in South Africa but they had terrible success. Uh, they tried all sorts of things, but they kept failing to the point where their missionary society called them back. But they did reach one person, one little child who continued to come to their meetings to help them with whatever they were doing. And that little child was Nicholas Bengu. 
I'm sure those two missionaries who came to Africa to try to start a mission felt terrible about themselves. They felt that they had failed God, that their work was in vain. But it turns out God had called them to that spot to speak to that one child who eventually would reach more Africans than any other. As you think about the people in your life who need to hear Jesus, who need you to get in their personal space, know that you may not see the results this side of heaven, but the work that you do will have eternal consequences. It might mean the salvation of that one person or of tens of thousands of Africans. Who knows? So be offended and be offensive in Jesus name. Amen.